City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing Commercial Theatre Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chair of the American Theatre Wing. Welcome to our Working in the Theatre Seminars. Today we will be discussing producing commercial theatre. We'll be back to show you a little more about what the Theatre Wing does, but right now let us join our panel and our moderator, the President and Executive Director of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization, Ted Chapin. Thank you. Welcome uh, to a seminar uh, devoted to producing for the commercial theater. And we have a distinguished group of independent, successful producers. I'd like to introduce the panel to you. Kevin McCollum, producer of, among other things, Avenue Q and Rent. Elizabeth McCann, producer of, among other things, the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and some upcoming shows this year. Also the managing producer of the Tony Awards. David Stone producer of, among others, Wicked, and the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. <laughs> Susan Gallen, producer of, among others, Spamalot. And Tom Virtel, producer of, among others, the current revival of Sweeney Todd, and the Hairspray and the Producers. Welcome. Now, I thought I would start this seminar with a quote. Um, let me read this. I don't do this often, but uh, the cost of production these days is so astronomical that investors are reluctant to trust their funds to any but the tried and true. The hazard is further increased by the fact that the cost of attending a musical has risen so that although there is a public longing for entertainment, people are unwilling to risk the price of a ticket. That is dated January 25th, 1952. <laughs> so I thought I would start by asking Liz McCann, who's been around a bit. Uh, the more things change. Did she give that? Was that her quote? No. I phrased that wrong. However, I was, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same? Pretty much. Pretty much. I think, you know, when you talk about, what's the first part? Cost rising? Yeah. I mean, we're in the business of making something out of nothing. That's what we do. I mean, we take a blank piece of paper and we read it, and a director says, I can spin a web with that blank piece of paper, and we make a total commitment of faith. We are the last of the believers, I always think. And uh, I, I bring this up because I think too often, I, I, have a, I have a great fondness for producers. Uh, I don't like them because they're my competition, <laughs> but I admire uh, the tenacity that makes them do that. And I think, I don't think there's one person on this panel that couldn't have a more relaxed life and probably financially a more rewarding life someplace else. So what grabs them? It's the notion of creating something out of nothing, being there at the moment of creation. 
You know, I also think that's true of investors because they're the people, you know, it, people say it's hard to find investors. They're there. When you have something, if you believe in it, they're there, and they're the passionate people. I mean, we're passionate about what we do. Those investors are passionate about theater, too, and want to support us. So sometimes I think that's misleading. In the old days, I know that it, there was always the feeling that um, a, a person could invest in Broadway and, and, and individuals could invest in, in Broadway. Is that something that's changed in this world of corporate? Uh, no. no. I, I think individuals actually make up the majority of investing because um, what I always say about any show is you create something from nothing, as Liz said, is the philosophy of why you're doing it. Um, why, why do you have to do it as a producer? Why does this director have to do it as a director? And it's never about, oh, because I need a gig. It's really because about, I, I think people are thirsty for this. It's that great human experiment that you do when you produce. And there is nothing as magical as the research and development of what if. And I think that is innately human. It's scary, it's exhilarating, and to have that range of emotion in your business is rare, and it's why individuals are still there, because a corporation does not have those responses. A corporation looks at everything every three months and decides, okay, what does this mean? It's a bottom line, and we are in a human bottom line mentality when we produce, and if we do that right, the bottom line will come. Well, I think that's right. I think the key to everything is that you can overcome all of the economic disadvantages by the passion of your audience. People will pay whatever is needed um, for the kind of experience that theater at its best delivers. And that is the thing that in 1952 and today really overcame and overcomes the um, economic disadvantages that we, uh, that we all suffer with. Um, and of course the trick in being a producer to some extent is to have that passion and understand it because obviously we wind up sharing that passion with the audience of anything that we go through to produce but still remaining businesslike and understanding what the parameters have to be so that you're not producing uh, you know in hysterics i think that's what what producing is it's it's about balance that's the art of it is being able to uh you know follow the passion of the the artists and and get them what they need and still, and, and get completely taken away by, by uh, the process of it, the creative process, but still to make proper business decisions. And it's easy to, to just do the art, and it's, uh, as a producer, and uh, we've seen perhaps producers who've, who've just maybe done things that weren't the right uh, in, in terms of business decisions, and it's easy to just look at the bottom line. The hardest thing is to, is to navigate the two. And on, on Wicked, don't you have universal pictures as one of the producers or investors? They're one of the largest investors and, and co-producers, yes. And so have you kept them in line? Uh, they, they've <laughs> been very, uh, very supportive. They, they were there at the beginning, and it was originally supposed to be a, a, a film. And um, they like to be reported to once or twice a year, and uh, you know, on big picture stuff, and mostly they let us. Well, you have good reports to give them, I we imagine. Do. That helps. We do, so that helps. But it's you also passion. It was also your passion and Mark Platt's passion. Absolutely. So even though it was a large company, it was the passion of Absolutely. two people. Absolutely. Is, is that something indicative of, 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 
other experiences where if corporate, since you are all individuals, I, I made that point and I can't stress it enough, none of you work that I know of for a corporation, therefore you are individuals out when you have to raise money. Um, have you worked with other organizations, institutions like Universal? Well, I mean, in the end, it's all just people. It's true that they may be people representing large amounts of money, but sooner or later you're talking to some guy from Miramax or some guy from New Line or some guy from Universal, uh, you know, who's trying to absorb whatever is going on on a human basis. So I haven't found much difference between dealing with the investor who writes a check for $200,000 and the person who works for uh, a movie company whose company has a million dollars in the show. Although what is happening and where the corporate uh, influence is, is interesting and also is a reason why many things are getting funded that might otherwise take longer to get funded is that when you are a commercial producer and you invent it from thin air, and there are some, I'm not talking about things that have specific underlying rights that already have obligations to those rights, but if you create something um, from scratch and, uh, uh, and with original characters, a corporation is very interested in investing not just for what happens on Broadway, but because when you are that initial producer in the live theater, there is an incredible bundle of rights that get activated. And uh, many corporations are interested in investing, and they'll say fine for Broadway. But you know what? We'd really love to have a first look at uh, you know, uh, electronic media, or we'd love to be the person. A lot of these corporations will find a, a complementary relationship in what you're doing and what their core business is. And we're seeing that more and more that gets exploited uh, through the life once the, uh, the project uh, gets going. And a lot of producers take that money as a hedge against the future, and a lot of producers also find it offensive because they're saying, look, I'm taking risk, let's see what happens, and then I'll come to you if there's something we can do together. And it just varies on the personality of the producer and the kind of project. But that's where producers are, uh, are very uh, uh, corporations that our producers have other agendas than just necessarily the Broadway production. One of the most interesting things from my point of view about producing has been the sort of endless learning curve. You know, when you, we started in this business 20 years ago, we were doing off-Broadway, but, and, and you know, you might get a national tour in addition to the show that you were doing in New York. Today, with, uh, you know, the obvious London and Australia uh, playoffs. There's also a lot of venues in Europe now that play these shows. Um, we're beginning to produce in, in China and East Asia. Um, obviously, a number of these uh, pieces have now been made into movies or about to be made into movies. The producers is opening in the next couple of days. Um, so you wind up kind of getting the opportunity to, kind of, to learn a lot about not just what it's like to produce here, but what the aftermath of that is, what the, the challenges and excitements, Las Vegas, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, that, that exist out in the larger world. And I think that's, that's one of the, for me, one of the great rewards of doing this. Are those different and, and new territories uh, primarily financially rewarding, or are they as artistically rewarding as, as we talked about producing on Broadway? I think it's sort of a mixed bag. Um, they're financially rewarding when they're financially rewarding. You know, I mean, it's like everything else. There's risk attached to every one of these things. Some of them are, are easier to cope with than others. Las Vegas, obviously, is something where you can protect yourself from, you know, risk. Um, but staying balanced, as David put it, and, and sort of understanding the risk-reward possibilities while trying to recreate the art or even improve the art um, is, is, is what those experiences are about. 
Uh, and for the most part, I think you could say that they've been, on balance, easier to make money with than, than New York is. Do we think Vegas is going to be the Broadway of the future, as it was reported in the paper recently? <laughs> it was also reported that maybe it isn't going to be the well, Broadway no, of the here, future. This is my opinion. I, I have a show, Avenue Q, that's currently uh, in Vegas, and uh, Spamalot is going to Vegas. And um, my feeling about Vegas is the theater, theater happens when people show up, you know, and in Vegas, the phenomenon of the past 10 years is it's gone uh, something like 20-some million to 35 to 39 million is the estimate of how many visitors. 2.9 nights. And they are there purely, purely to be entertained. Now, the idea of Broadway in Vegas, I don't think that's correct as much as you have 39 million people in a given year looking to be entertained 24-7. And you only can spend so long at a table and the idea of humor, comedy, which Avenue Q has and Spamalot has, has been a tradition in Vegas. So yes, Avenue Q and Spamalot were on Broadway, but the idea that we're a Broadway show is really not the point of being in Vegas. What being in Vegas is about is about entertainment and people who are looking to be separated from their money 24-7 <laughs> and in the process being entertained for doing that and feeling they got great value. Um, so that's what's happening. And as the Cirque shows are hundreds and $200 million extravaganzas, the idea of having shows that happen to be on Broadway and are popular and are funny and are entertaining, um, the threshold of entry it, for Vegas, it's a very reasonable business model. And for the shows from the theater producer standpoint, it's a bonanza. So the good news is it's a, it's a you know, it, it truly is, in the Vegas vernacular, a win-win. Would you ever think of starting a show in Vegas? Um, I would think of it, uh, and then I would realize that if, when you, you have to start shows, in my opinion, um, even shows that start out of town oftentimes are created in New York in terms of where the community of artists live, most of them. And uh, I, would, uh, I would venture to say, starting a show in Vegas, you start with a certain set of expectations that are different than opening a Broadway show. It might happen, but it's going to take a community that decides to move out there and live there before that happens. Whenever there's talented people, you can create things. I'm, I'm a great believer in that. I mean, really talented people. Well, Vegas has created shows. I mean, Cirque shows, but Broadway. I'm talking about yeah. so specific no, I mean, two-act shows. My mind's shows. going through. Didn't Weren't there one or two shows created for Broadway? I mean, I mean, in Vegas. Not that I'm. Not that I'm. I know they were talking oh, about Miss Spectacular. There were. Which but, ones? Uh, I'm searching too, and I can't. Miss well, Spectacular was, was supposed yeah, to. Oh, Jerry, so that Jerry, didn't. Jerry, that never got. Never but it happened. was developed never. to happen there. Yeah. It was developed yeah. because of the venue, right. but it never actually got produced on any level. Is, is Wicked, uh, are there plans for, for Vegas for Wicked? Uh, down the line, perhaps, but you know, we, we believe that uh, Wicked's been a very successful tour uh, and want to keep it out there. In fact, we have not only a touring company, which just uh, recouped after about 36 weeks uh, uh, $11 million, which is a big tour and a, and a quick recoupment, but, but uh, a, sh a sit-down Chicago company because there was such demand. And um, you know, it, it, what, what Kevin is saying about that you don't have the costs of moving are so enormous that sitting in one place is certainly 
valuable, but at the same time, so is going and, and building your brand, as it were, uh, across the country. It not only, it's counterintuitive, it not only sells tickets when you go to St. Louis, but the people who couldn't get a seat for three weeks in St. Louis will come to Broadway, and the, the tours help Broadway, too. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I mean, when you said Chicago, something went into my head about nothing really changes, because um, we think when we start here in New York and we create something that everybody in the United States has heard about it, and nobody's heard of it past Newark. I mean, that is the truth of the matter. Now, when he said he went to Chicago, I remember years ago there was a standard kind of rule of thumb, these crazy rules of thumb. You played New York for a year, and bing, then you opened a Chicago company, because in theory, you then spread the brand down through the Midwest. Oh, but is that, that was part of, There is, um, and, and when you look at you know, Chicago, there's 35 million people in, in a four-hour drive of Chicago. Right. Um, but the reason we did it was simply because it, it took off the first day we went on sale, and Jimmy Niederlander said, why would you leave? You, 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 know, you have to do a company that just stays here. Because he was a landlord, of course. I think was, that was uh, what he was. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is he, that. He was very much concerned with the growth of, uh, yes. of uh, Wicked in Chicago. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that, you know, one of How the things... How they renegotiated the rent for the extension. <laughs> <laughs> Insider information. If he, did, if he did, I'm sure David got the better end of it. Um, but I think that, you know, when we were putting Wicked out on tour, we were very conservative. We had no idea that, that it had filtered out to, around the country to the extent that it had. I, I remember right after it opened, we were in Chicago, and uh, I was in the suburbs, and every, everyone had heard of it. But I was in L.A. that same trip, and... Nope. No one had heard of it. Yep. So I thought, okay, well, we have to be, uh, we have to be careful. And I remember talking to, um, uh, to Margot Lyon, uh, one of Tom's partners on, on, uh, on Hairspray, and just finding out you know, what had gone out recently and what things they did right, what things they did wrong, what we could learn from it. And we, whenever we said, you know, we should uh, be there for 10 weeks, we said, great, we'll be there for six. And, and in order to create that sort of demand. And then it, you know, we look very smart in retrospect that the tour has done as well as it has, but actually we were just being conservative. And did you do the same with Hairspray and the producers in terms of touring? We did. We thought we were being conservative. In some cases we did some overbooking. It was a funny time when both shows went out because there were a lot of blockbuster hits out simultaneously. The Lion King, Mamma Mia, Hairspray, the producers, um, and Phantom was still doing well as well. So there, there would be, you'd come into a market and there'd be three of the shows there simultaneously or at least one would be selling while you were performing and it, there were a couple of occasions where it got really hair-raising as popular as the shows were. Um, so there's a lot to think about as you tour around and the nice thing about Las Vegas in theory at least is that it can absorb almost an unlimited number of shows because the turnover of people is immense. I mean in San Francisco the vast majority of people who are going to the theater are people who live in and around San Francisco. There's some minor tourist component but it's not a big deal. Where you are in Las Vegas everybody's turning over what 2.9 days so you know if the last bunch, some of them saw the show, then the next bunch is coming in right behind them. Um, I, I persist in thinking that Las Vegas is very much a cyclical thing, though. I mean, we've been through a, probably two or three periods in my lifetime when Broadway shows were a big thing in Las Vegas, and then, you know, a couple of them fail, and the whole thing disappears for a while, and then it comes back. Um, I, don't, I don't put much long-term stock in this idea. This is a popular idea now, and I think it's just sort of 
building up ahead of steam, but I would be willing to bet that five, seven years from now you will see some other form of entertainment dominating and Broadway shows being less important for a while and then having the whole thing start over again. But, but the thing that's in common with, with all of us and how you create hits, first of all, the show has to be popular or good or whatever, capture the imagination of the public, however you want to define it. But it's about going to the environments where you can create a tight ticket, where the uh, there's an awareness of the show and a sense, I better call now if I want a good seat. And um, one of the things uh, that is, is true is in what Tom said about perhaps some overbooking. And I came from booking. That was my first business in the theater, really. And uh, it's, all about, it's all about trying to keep it as intimate as possible of a ticket, whether it's a show that can do a million and a half a week like Wicked or a show like Avenue Q that only can gross 500 at its top on Broadway. It's all about how is, that, how is the venue suited for the show. And, um, and that's the important thing to look at. Well, I, w I wanted to pick up on, on some statistics that have been f floating around here and also ask, uh, do you as independent producers, do you do testing to know that there's 2.9 um, you know, days in, in Vegas? Do, do you use those sort of marketing tests and do you use them and are they helpful? I do go door to door, to door in every hotel room in Vegas. <laughs> this is good. How long are you here? And it's weird. 2. They're there for 2.9 days. days. But they shower only one every four days. It's weird. Yeah. No, but the, um, whole wor the whole world of marketing. Is something I don't that believe in that. Some people do. I, I ask friends and I ask fellow producers. And we have a, you know, what was your experience? What do you think? Uh, uh, and I talk to the venues themselves. I don't have a focus group. But the thing is, every major city, every city has a tourism board. And, and those statistics are easily gettable. But sometimes cities are, are just uh, out of proportion, th their interest in theater uh, to, to their population. Boston is one of the best theater markets in the country. San Francisco is. They're not as big as Dallas or Houston, but the I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do a sit-down production of, of, of we're doing Spelling Bee in San Francisco. I wouldn't be doing that in Dallas. <laughs> so when you, when you opened in um, Chicago, it was, you were not planning on doing and the company being a, a sit-down company? W Wicked was a, a weird thing. The, the tour started in Toronto and then was going to Chicago and then L.A. And we went on sale in December for a run in May. And the tickets went out in a week, were sold out in a week. So um, we just got rushed and mounted a company so that the tour played its seven weeks. The, 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 the costumes and the actors went to L.A. where a new set was waiting for them. And... Um, the new actors in their new costumes rehearsed on the set that just st stayed there uh, in Chicago. So it was sort of a weird. But that's also, I mean, Wicked, I think it's, it, it's fair to say, Wicked has found an audience that I think nobody would have understood at the beginning that it found. And it's, it's scary. It's so successful. And, and, and more power to you. It's, I don't think it's the norm. No. Well, I think, I, I, I believe that the statistics that we use and quote are either used for sales purposes, we're selling somebody with those statistics on an idea, or they're used to comfort ourselves. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that any of us are really making decisions based on those kinds of statistics, because in the end, we go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this uh, seminar, which is it's all about passion. I mean, David presumably produced Wicked and Kevin produced Avenue Q because they loved the material, mm -hmm. love the shows. And there's no way to know when you start whether anybody else will love it, but the, produ the producers who survive are the people whose passions tend to mirror enough of the audiences so that they can attract an audience well, to Well, not only shows. that, I mean, er any time I've produced anything thinking, you know what, this is going to work, this is going to make money, I'm going to do this because I it's never worked. And any time I've said, 
I just, I, I just love this. I don't care if it works. I love it. It, it always has. And, and, you but know. it's based on some education. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, you don't, also go, you don't know just what, jump yeah. in. But yeah. there is. I, I get teased a lot for a quote I use. Is I, I kind of say we're in the drug business, uh, which is in the drug we're trying to create is what gets the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. And I always say, if it's a, if it's a five uh, hair on the neck uh, standing up in a, in a musical, you might have a shot. It might not be logical in terms of business because it doesn't fit any formula, and I'm anti-formula anyway. But it's that what you're thirsty for and you don't know you're thirsty for. And, and it's that kind of, oh, that surprised me. And if you're going to spend $100 on a ticket, there better be five really wonderful emotional surprises to your story. You know, we're talking about theater as um, musicals. Um, I mean, uh, pl plays are really what I came into this business for. And Liz, I think you mostly do plays. I'm too I chicken to do musicals. <laughs> I, have, I have done musicals, but they blew up in my face every time. So I say, no, that's not my, that's not my bag. But um, I think one of the things that you said, um, I think if you're fortunate enough, because you produce something out of passion and you think your audience, you think you defined your audience, but you haven't. One of the interesting things happened to Wicked is the teenage girls went ballistic, right? I mean, they, they but they became a force behind that musical. Mm -hmm. You don't agree? No. I, I mean, I, it's, this, it's this, this thing in the media, it's fascinating. They're there. They're probably 10% of our audience. They're very vocal. Um, and they come back a lot, but those numbers can't be, they don't have the buying power to do that every week all around the country. And it is, it's that it's every audience, but they definitely are, are, are talking about it a lot, but they're not, that's, that's not mostly who's there. In fact, I think, it's not even a small part of but it. But I think what it is, is it's the outsider and everyone. That's and right. that's, that's, we all, we all, at some point of our life, whether it's when we were a teenager or we're an adult or whatever, we all define ourselves as, as human beings who are trying to figure it out. And your story has such powerful emotional pull for that. You might not belong now, but if you stick to it, you're going to not only blossom, you're going to change the world. Well, I think all the, the, the shows, plays, musicals, that work the best are the ones also that operate on many different levels at the same time. Uh, in the case of Wicked, you know, young kids appreciate the Wizard of Oz aspects of it. Teenagers appreciate, you know, the outsider and the popular girl. Adults appreciate what friendship is and um, about sacrifice, and there's a political aspect to it. And, and every, and they can all go together and then talk about it afterwards. I think that's the case. You know, Mamma Mia, people say it's about ABBA and, and fun. The reason why it's successful, I'm convinced, is because the relationship between the mother and the daughter in that show is totally real. And, and, and who's your father is a pretty emotionally yeah. interesting idea. <laughs> no, it's an, I saw it, I thought to myself, how clever that they've taken an emotionally rich idea on which to, to put a lot of stuff that, yeah. that people will come to the theater so to So you can enjoy. have a great time, and you also take something yeah. away from it. It's, it's having some sort of emotional yeah. experience as well. Hairspray is like that too. So I, I think that every show that really works is because it works on many different levels I have, I have a funny story about Rent. Um, when we, uh, we were producing it for the first time, uh, people who were very knowledgeable in the business were outraged that we just said Rent. We didn't say a musical. We didn't say whatever. And the, our logic was our audience doesn't know what a musical is, part of our audience that we're going to want. And why are we imposing on them what it is? It's Rent. Yes, it's on Broadway. And if you're 
a rock concert fan, you can look at it as a concert. You can look at it as an opera if you're a bohem fan. You can look at it as musical comedy because you know of how it's structured and uh, and the music. Or you can you know you can look at it any way or a play with music. You decide what it is. It's not our job to tell you what it is. And that's how you get all those audiences when everybody can attach given their own sensibility, which is what you're talking about. Let's pick up on the, on the idea of plays and producing plays. This is a, a seminar on commercial theater. Um, is the Broadway world hospitable to plays these days? Hospitable? Well, <laughs> I, you know, why don't I step, bounce this question to you? I, you know, the margin of success for plays is, is of course, difficult. Um, I think last night I was looking at a tape called Broadway's Golden, Golden, which was a, a section of, of excerpts from plays that had been shown on the Tony Awards. And it started with Great White Hope, and they went through a whole gamut of plays. And some of them went back to the days when uh, um, they showed quite a big chunk of the play on the Tony Awards. And as I sat there watching, I thought, mm, you can't, it's very difficult to put a play out there where the public is used to watching advertising. You know, it's very difficult to reduce a play to a television commercial, to a radio commercial, or even a scene. It just, it just, I, I was very depressed. But anyway, they do tend to lie flat. Um, it, an example, well, I mean, I'm, I'm always being surprised. I was involved with the Needlanders in a play called Copenhagen. And by all rhyme and reason, Copenhagen should not have worked. I mean, we were desperate for investors. And for Needlander to be desperate for investors, you know, uh, we had a meeting one day, and three high rollers got up and walked out of Jimmy's conference room. And I said, so now what do I do? He said, produce it. That's all he said. I said, where do we get the money? He said produce it. That's all he said. He said, if I have to, I'll cover it. Well, I, the amazing thing about Copenhagen is that, I don't know why it was so successful in New York. It was many, much more successful than it ever was in London. Unexplainable, unfocusable. But I would sit with the press agent and say, how do we get the scientific audience? We have to get the scientific audience. It found us. And we had five Nobel Prize winners in Phoenix in, the in, in physics one day in the audience. I mean, New York and Americans were fascinated by that whole notion. The Jewish audience found it fascinating because of what it reflected of what the tremendously fascinating story of, well, I'm, you don't want to hear about Copenhagen. But what I mean is, <laughs> It was just amazing. But, but in contrast, if, if I'm correct, you did a wonderful production of, of Virginia Woolf last year, got great reviews, it was wonderful, and couldn't really find an audience. Give you an example. Last performance of Virginia Woolf in New York, which I love to say is the audience for uh, doubt. They went home in the middle of our second act, and we were across the street. It's very depressing to see a whole audience be able to go home in 90 minutes, and your actors still have another 90 minutes to slug through. But anyway. That was the street where every actor on the street was nominated for a Tony Award. Because right. they're both placed at four, four, four actors, actors, and they were all nominated. nominated. So anyway, um, Sam Rudy and I, the press agent, are standing in this lobby of the last performance. Time to go in for the third act. We turn to go, and some lady says, you going back in? And we said, well, yeah. And she said, well, nothing happens, does it? Just more talk, isn't it? And I thought, oh, God, my. And 
company manager said, oh, no, it's fabulous, because you find out and she's going at all shell spiel about what happens in the third act. And the lady said, oh, yeah, I know all that, because I saw the good version. <gasps> and I said, excuse me, what? She said, you know, the one with Liz Taylor and Richard Burton, that was the good version. And I thought, that's what we're fighting. We're fighting a very strong image of that movie. And ironically, the playwright's contention, and it's true, is that was the wrong image. The movie is not Virginia Woolf. The play that Edward and Anthony Page put on the stage was the real Virginia Woolf. Lightning fast, quick-witted, and yet there I, w I, there I was, educated in three minutes. But, but let's not confuse Copenhagen, which is a new play that no one had seen before and didn't have that image out there, and Virginia Woolf, which was distributed electronically, you know, 30-some years ago, and and, and what we're competing with in a revival. Because Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. brilliant production. I was there mesmerizing, but it's, it's not new material. And, <laughs> and, and so let's, let's concentrate on you know, new material. I think a new material play, in terms of the people and the collaboration, is really the, your relationship is primarily with your um, playwright. And in a musical, you've got a lot of people down to the orchestrator mm -hmm. who needs to be taken care of from an intellectual property standpoint. And so the collaboration aspect of a musical versus the personal... orchestrators for Edward Albee any day. <laughs> 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 I have a conversation with Edward Albee. You go have it. I tell you, a room full of orchestrators are easier. But, 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 but you know what I'm saying? And if, if Virginia Woolf was an original play that happened, I mean, uh, the first out of the box, and we saw that performance, Liz, you'd be running for many, many well, years. Well, but there are other, you know, um, a few years ago, Tom was quoted as saying, it's very hard to do uh, plays on Broadway. And I was very, no, 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 that's not, you know, that, that couldn't possibly be true because I am a play producer and my impetus for working in the theater is about what plays do to people. Um, I've done three plays, four plays in the last four years. I couldn't be prouder of them. I think that they were cast well. I think they had you know, they were, uh, they were about issues that people wanted to talk about, cared about. There was a group of people that really loved the plays. Each one ran for six months. It didn't get, um, in each one of the last three plays did not get a good review from the one newspaper that needs to support plays. I think the whole, the whole difference in what's happening now is that you can do a musical and there's, if there's an audience for it, you will, you'll have that audience. It doesn't matter what happens uh, with the critics. With a play, it, it's, there isn't enough of an audience. So if the New York Times, and we've done this, it's not the critics' fault, it's our fault. If the New York Times doesn't like your play, then you'll run for six months and that's it. Um, and, um, were, the, were these Broadway or are all Broadway plays? A you Retreat from Moscow was Broadway. Um, uh, Woman Before a Glass was off-Broadway in The Shape of Things, which was a huge hit in London. Um, didn't get a good review. And, um, unless, you have a, unless there's a star, because a for, star. for a play, yeah. you know, really only one serious play, I'm convinced, can, can run each year on Broadway, although last year there, were, there was Doubt and Pillman, both, them, yeah. both were cooped, but that was, that was an exception. But usually there's one, unless there's stars. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one, of the things that's, one of the things that's underlying this that's really as scary as anything you're saying about plays on Broadway is that commercial off-Broadway has just disappeared. Yes. 
Um, when we started in this business 20 years ago, we were off-Broadway producers, and we produced a string of shows off-Broadway, plays off-Broadway, and that was a very good environment to produce in. Um, you know, we did several plays by Pete Gurney, and we did a, a play by uh, Alfred Urey, and, and one by Terence McNally. Uh, and you could make commercial sense out of those plays. It was a good way to build our uh, careers, but it was also a circumstance in which you could actually have a successful run with a play. That's completely disappeared. I don't know that there's been a successful run with a play off-Broadway in the last three years. And the result is that plays that would have played off-Broadway, it's funny because in those days everybody would go, oh my goodness, you know, if this play were 10 years ago, this is back in the 80s, it would have been on Broadway. Now, they all are on Broadway and everybody's Broadway. going, you know, 10 years ago this would have been off-Broadway. But, but the result is that the stakes are so high, I mean, you're talking about $2 million to produce a play on Broadway, the stakes are now so high and the audience is so diminished uh, that oh, nothing but the, the, the sort of the single outstanding event actually succeed. But I think a lot of this started actually with Rent, um, and that when Rent and Avenue Q and Spelling Bee and on the play side, um, uh, Proof, I think, was a play that would probably years before have been off-Broadway. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's, it's, the, it's the prototypical off-Broadway play, in fact. And they all went to Broadway and worked, because when the numbers started being, you know, close, when it's two million to do Proof, on Broadway, or probably less at that time, um, and uh, you know, 900,000. And you to say, do well, it why not? Yeah. I mean, when we were, uh, and this is a musical, but when we were looking at Spelling Bee, it was, it was two million to do it well at a large off Broadway theater, or three and a half to do it on Broadway and have more seats and the exposure of that. Well, it was a no brainer. And, and I think that, that, that off Broadway is left, I'm sorry to say, with not the product that it used to have. I was uh, doing this union negotiation recently for the Director and Choreographers uh, Guild for Off-Broadway, where I have not really worked since uh, Vagina Monologues and Susan and I did Fully Committed together. In the last five years, there have been 120 commercial productions. Five of them have been profitable. And, you know, th that includes Menopause the Musical and, uh, and something like Bug, which just recouped mm -hmm. and made a dollar and a half in profit. And that's even scarier than Broadway. It's over with, and, and, the, and the, when we were doing Frankie and Johnny and, and Daisy simultaneously, Steel Magnolias was running successfully, and there were at least one or two other shows other with names I've never forgotten. And, now, and, now, and other people's money. And now exactly. those plays would be on Broadway. Well, but yes, you, but the problem is only one of them would succeed. Right. So we've gotten into a situation where the play filter has become so severe that you know it's almost impossible to produce because if you're not that one, there are no other alternatives. Yes. Do you think this is a phenomenon of uh, Six Feet Under, HBO, uh, doing? Extent, yeah. the, you know, what's interesting is we used to have the miniseries. I remember when I was growing up in Hawaii, and and we'd you know, rich man, poor man, and things. And actually, what's happening with HBO, which is obviously attracting a lot of writing talent as well, is that and a lot of it is very theatrical now. We are seeing a lot of very theatrical applications on our television. And what's different about uh, plays is that an audience looks at those words and say, well, that's like a play. I saw uh, Virginia Woolf, but they actually saw the movie. The thing about it is a musical is something that does not translate in the brain by seeing it on, on the screen as, as well as seeing it live. And that's the one thing the musical has that is very still. Now, as technology changes and we get into holograms, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but right now, plays, the audience is thinking about it in two-dimensionality because they're reality-based, typically. 
and, uh, and musicals have an element of fantasy that doesn't translate as well. Uh, through uh, a filmic. Hopefully the producers will, will and, and Rent has obviously spurred more people to go to the theater because it's a movie, because of awareness. But so I think there's something in there too, and I don't have the answer. I'm just fascinated by what's happening with how we're delivering our entertainment. But the other night when I watched Boston Legal, oh, I sorry, I, but I, I find this so fascinating I can't stand it. <laughs> we did a play called The Goat, or Who is Sylvia? And the the flack was flying all around us. I mean, we were doing a play about bestiality. No, we weren't. I kept saying, listen, Long Day's Journey in Tonight is not about drug addiction, and the goat is not about bestiality. Now, can we just all simmer down? But the fur was flying. So we produced the goat, and it won a Tony Award and all of that, okay? Now I turn on Boston Legal the other night, three years after the goat, and Candace Bergen is confronted with a case about a woman wanting an annulment because her husband is sleeping with a cow. And I think, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've just been ripped off. And do you know something? It was, I, I bless David Kelly, because he's very bright and he handled this very well, but there it was, ABC, 10 o'clock, Tuesday night, bestiality in all its glory. Now, I, it wasn't about bestiality, you know, he very carefully picked up from the good points in Edward about the human sexual condition and put it right on ABC. But we caught the flack, and he caught the ratings. I mean, it's just silly. <laughs> but do you think the flack... We're going to take a pause here. We're going to take a pause here, and for a few words about the American Theatre Wing, and we'll be back. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theatre. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. Kevin, what you said about um, uh, the difference between uh, plays and, and, and musicals, um, to me the experience of a play and why I produce a play is because the people go into the theater and they have an experience, they are sparked to think about something, they're elevated in a way that doesn't happen if you see that play on film. Um, that, and, and if you see the same idea translated into a television show, it's a plot. It's a story. It's not about something that's going to enlighten you in some way. Maybe that's um, you know a kind of um, idealistic way of thinking what theater is, but you know, that's. Well, I, I agree with you. It, that's the reality of going to the theater as a theater goer. I get it. I, I I'm really responding to what are we? What is giving the audience the excuse to say I think I've seen that? Yeah by not going to the theater. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer, and I talk about this a lot in today's society, we market so many things based on, oh look, it's convenient. 
You don't have to leave your house. And we call the Internet interactive, even though it's actually isolating. There's nothing interactive about sitting at your machine and talking to people on a machine. This is interactive. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who are watching this on television, they're not interacting with us. So it's not interactive for them. It's, it's interesting, and they're watching it, let's hope. And, um, and I think what Liz was saying about, oh, I saw the good version, which was the film, I'm just talking about an audience point of view of a certain generation that hasn't been exposed to the theater, especially since we've taken arts out of our schools for the past 25 years. And what I'm talking about is how do we convince people, as a producer, someone who would produce plays, how do we, how do we educate them and give them the sense that it's not just words, it's actually going to the theater. And what I'm saying is musicals have an easier time because that is something they don't normally experience by turning on their... Well, I think television. that there is a really small audience for serious, for serious drama. Um, that there are a lot of people who go to the theater and there are some plays that are sitcoms and they like to, and they go to see those plays and they, and, and they say, I've been to the theater and they feel good about it. But I think that what we care about doing is, you know, is something, is serious theater, is something that will change people's lives. Um, so it's protecting, it's how do you make, how do you make that little, that, how do you bring that very small audience, and it's a small audience, how, do you, how are you able to produ produce plays economically for that very small but audience? You're, you're also, I don't want to put words in, in, yeah. in your mouth, but I would think that also part of this is that, that you're doing something for, for a greater good of the theater in general, yes? Hmm. I, I worry about getting to, you know, here, here's the thing. <coughs> and I'll give half of what I earn to charity. Yes, go ahead. It's entertainment. I mean, I think you make people, I always say, the real serious issues, if you really want to make important theater, uh, make sure that, that, that you're touching their, their emotions or you're making them laugh. If, if, you, if, you, if you present it as, as it's important, it's probably going to be less important. If they're laughing and then they realize, you know, I was laughing, but what that really was about was that, or I thought the goat was about this, but it's about that, it doesn't, it, it only in, I think, its application of how your emotion is dealing with it, that then it becomes quote-unquote important. I, I think it has to be entertaining first. I, I really do. Engrossing. Engrossing. Thank I would, that's a better I word. would challenge the word yeah. entertainment because yeah. I think to go back to something Susan said, I, I do think an audience, cop from Edward, has to leave the theater enriched and, well, they do when they see Rent. I mean, they feel, um, was Rent important? Yes, yes, in many ways, because it was a new composer and all that. But you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not, I don't know how to describe it. it it's, 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 you grab them by the throat, and they will remember they've been there. Mm -hmm. If That's you can it. think, if, if, if people leave the theater and they're thinking about something in a slightly new way, it doesn't matter what it is, mm -hmm. then, it's, then it's accomplished its goal. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's not that to it's good for you. To what extent do you think the not-for-profits, and we're kind of back in the area of the New York Times of last Sunday. I mean, they, they produce more plays on Broadway, particularly now that MTC is at the Biltmore and, and the Roundabout. Both of them have Broadway houses, and Lincoln Center regularly takes a Broadway house. They have their large subscription list. Between those three theaters, they must have uh, a fixed audience of about 90,000 playgoers. To what extent has, does that impact on our our audience, or yeah, I, I that's where they go to see their plays. They make their commitment to yes see four no. plays a year. But because I think what nonprofits do, and they do it better than we do, 
is nurture writers, nurture artists. They can say, we're doing your next play regardless of really whether it's, it's good or ready or not. We can't do that. We have to make sure the play is great <laughs> and, the, and the largest possible audience wants to see it. And there, it, there's no, uh, it's no accident that the Death of a Salesman and West Side Story were developed in, in, in the commercial theater because they had to be good or else people were walking out you know, out of town. And I, I think that, look, the nonprofits are great, and not only do we sometimes move things from a nonprofit to a commercial uh, production, and they, and they develop artists and audiences too, but I still think that the, the best work has to be uh, in, in the biggest possible I, I, I got to say, I, I sort of disagree with you. I think that there's a mentality that goes on at not-for-profits that's very unhealthy in terms of the development of really exciting new work, which is that they're always going to be on to the next. Right. They know they're going to produce five, six, seven, eleven shows a year, whatever it turns out to be. And so they can't really linger over any of them. They come in and they do their work. They do what we as producers do, which is to sort of, you know, try to interact with the artists to make things, you know, better. Um, but their mandate is to produce a lot of theater every year. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, um, we, it, have, it, we it have is, to get it right. It's yeah. what you're they, saying, yeah. but it's, but it's a sort of a, um, I think a it's kind of a difficult case for not-for-profits to, to take the challenge of experimentation. Here, because they're captives of their subscription audience. Yes. Yeah. And, and here, here's what's totally interesting. Captives. Here's what's interesting that's been going on for at least the f last seven years that I've been involved in a few of these. Actually, um, I've dealt with not-for-profits of believing in something, had all the rights, and gone to them and say, I have the rights to this show because I've been developing it for a couple of years. Are you interested in this? And they say, yes. And then actually what's happening is sometimes the commercial theater producers are bringing product to the not-for-profit that is developed to a certain point but now needs to add an audience. I did this, yeah. and, and that is actually, um, and this is not versus the not-for-profits on all, it's a different kind of collaboration where actually what has shifted from the regional movement and the not-for-profit movement as not-for-profits have had to deal in the Broadway arena to bump up their uh, exposure and get more donors and things like that, but they really, there's so much time uh, working with uh, fundraising as well as development, all we do is try to develop shows that people want to see. That's kind of what I devote my time to all the time. And sometimes things bubble up to me, and I'm saying, you know what? I really need to add an audience now. And this is a great not-for-profit. We have a great relationship. Let's work with this not-for-profit and take it to the next step. And that's what's happened that, on majority of my but shows. But a lot of that has to do, I mean, the not-for-profits are in a very different place, and it has to do with their needing money. Mm -hmm. and when, one of the first plays that I did uh, was Other People's Money, and we did it at Hartford Stage. And we, they, I, we had the rights to it. Um, we were not, it wasn't our production. It was their production. We were told if, um, and I'm very close to most of the people that I worked with um, then, um, that if we behaved ourselves really well, we could come, you know, we could come into auditions. It was their production. And that was, to me, that was right. I mean, that's, um, but then as the not-for-profits needed commercial needed needed to be doing plays that would move on to commercial houses or commercial success they allowed commercial producers to become involved in their production so it's not quite as as pure as it was but here's the deal the relationship that you had was with the playwright initially and you said let's go to the Hartford stage mm -hmm. to do it and we also my job is also to to protect the playwright and it's also better for the playwright to say oh here's somebody so that it's a natural progression 
so that uh, it's actually everybody wins because the whole notion of you can't come to auditions, I said, yes, if you have nothing to say and you're not a smart person or you're not somebody who's collaborative or you're a pain in the butt, whatever. But the reality is we're all trying to make theater. And um, that has changed since other people's money. And I find the collaboration to be one of, um, of we are actually giving something of great value if we have the rights here not for profit, take our rights and take it to the next step. And we're all professionals here. I think it's a healthier way uh, uh, of what's happening. And we are actually great risk takers. We have to be if we're going to stay in this business as commercial theater goers. And all I'm saying is that I wouldn't know how to produce seven shows a year, which is what a lot of these not-for-profits have to do uh, to serve their audience. So I think we are a wonderful tool, and I think it's a mutual relationship that will only get better. But it's yeah. essentially a, an economic relationship, in my view, not a collaborative artistic relationship to nearly the same extent. The reason you take a show to a not-for-profit is because you can give them $100,000 in the show, and they'll put it on where it would cost you $2 million to stick it on Broadway. Um, I agree with you that the collaborative aspects of it have gotten smoother and easier. There was about 25 years ago, 30 years ago now, there was a, there was a, a conference called ACT, yeah. you know, down at Princeton. And uh, it was a conference of commercial and non-commercial producers. Um, and this is really in the dim and distant past. And I wasn't there, but apparently it was a dogfight. I mean, people were screaming and yelling at each other. And we did a reprise of it four or oh, five years ago. And it was all just, oh, yeah, we made a deal with these guys. And you know, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting for us to make a deal? Um, and, and, and the atmosphere between the two sides has absolutely changed completely. Um, but it is, I always think, pretty much an economic um, a, a transaction rather than a... But, rather than you know, but it's that interesting, point. but I, this is what I do when I do these relationships. Um, the person who runs the organization is very important in a not-for-profit. And they also have a certain audience makeup. You know, we have to cast each other yes. in that relationship. Like, oh, you know what, that person who runs that theater company has had a relationship with this author before or not, and here's somebody who we have a mutual goal of protecting this person. So yes, the economics are definitely there, but there are places I would not say, here are my rights, because be I just think it. that it would be just purely money. And then, if it's just purely money, I have missed the opportunity to add another really good brain, given what this show is. So uh, I, I, I try to, I try to ba get I, balance. I, I grew up in the era where, where many of the, of the playbills on Broadway said, David Merrick presents. Sometimes play. eight shows a year. Right. But, so my question is, in all these various things that, that we're talking about, you guys as the independent producers, does there, have to be, does there not have to be one person who is the producer on each project to be successful? Uh, I like to... <coughs> well, I, David Merrick used to use the expression, who has the muscle? Right. It's a very good expression. David always said he had the muscle. But uh, on a Jerome Robbins show, Jerome Robbins had the muscle. But the fr it meant somebody had to be in charge and have a clear idea of the vision. I think that's what David meant. Um, I, I think when there are a lot of producers and a lot of interests, it's hard. But I, Tom, it takes more time. Tom's group... Uh, there are often many names above the title of the shows that Tom sure. works on, except from my own experience, it's never been a problem as to there's somebody who's, who you talk to. Yeah, well, we, we're very careful about sort of lines of communication, but although we might only talk through one voice to the director, for example, to try to make changes and give notes, 
that voice will have heard everybody else in the producing group and collectively will have decided you know, what notes to pass on and what notes not to. Um, and, and, and more and more, I think, realistically, it's, it's not the producer who's sitting there with the vision, if you will. I mean, it may be when the project starts out and it's just a producer and a piece of property. But as you begin to add first authors and then directors, they begin to run with the vision. And, and I think that's as it should be. I, you know, you can have some impact on the way the project comes out by being careful about, you know, attending rehearsals and attending previews and, um, you know, giving your thoughts. Uh, and you can have quite a lot of cloud, actually. But in the long run, if you've got the right creative team, you're 90% of the way there. And if you don't, uh, your notes aren't going to change things. They mm -hmm. aren't going to make the difference. I'd like to talk about one of my big mistakes it involves you. I had an opportunity through Howard Banter to put a substantial sum of money into Sweeney Todd. Big, smart New York girl said, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney is not in London or Sweeney in New York? Right there in New York. In New York. I don't know if you knew that, but Howard, who produced it in London and was producing it with you here, mm -hmm. asked me if I would like to make an investment purely on an investment basis, mm -hmm. not on a co-producing basis. And I said, no, come on, Sweeney Todd will never be commercial. Now, I, I'm smart, right? Now I'm sitting in the theater watching people yell and scream and applaud your production of Sweeney Todd, and I'm killing myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the I show's about. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm thinking successful. to myself that the success of that show is it's in a different form. It's non-traditional in its approach to. And sometimes I think the problem with our plays is, and part of it is the influence of television writers, is they're naturalistic. They're purely naturalistic. We've lost track of the Equuses, which had a heightened theatricality, or the Amadeuses, which had a heightened theatricality. And I think <coughs> a lot of the, you know, the Biltmore Theater, nice square box on stage, produced naturalistic plays. When have you heard dialogue like, attention must be paid? Our writers aren't even writing theatrical dialogue. I mean, it, 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 I really think there's something in the nature of where plays has gone that it has to break out of. Well, I think from, from my point of view, th there's, a, uh, there's a lot of um, BS theater that goes on. Um, you know, people who are breaking the envelope in one way or another, pushing the envelope in one way or another, that is essentially, seems to me to be pretentious. Uh, every once in a while, we produced a show called Mnemonic a couple of years ago that was like this and Sweeney. The way in which it breaks the envelope, the way in which it pushes the envelope uh, is, is really illuminating. Um, and that was what I think is at the heart of what makes the show uh, exciting and, 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 and may make it successful, um, is, is that it is a different form. But it's a different form that actually illuminates the material and actually makes the material clearer and more riveting uh, than it might be in other forms. Um, and, and that was what excited me about the project. I mean, this production is much stronger than the one in London. The one in London was just indicative of what it could be. Uh, but even then, you could see that it gave you, a, you know, Sweeney Todd is what, maybe one of the two or three most important musicals of the last 50 years. It gave you that musical in a way that was not only different, but different in a way that bore on the musical and actually, you know, sort of raised it to another level uh, emotionally. I, I, coming back to the idea that this is a business about emotions. You cannot get $100 from people for, you know, treating them to a piece of intellectual material. You have to get it because you are touching them in ways that television can't and, generally speaking, movies can't. Uh, without that, I don't think you've got anything to base a, a show on.
So a teacher of mine years ago said to us theater students, you're all studying candle dipping and electricity has been invented. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Your candle dippers and they're good can candles. But the I do thing about candles is you can, if you get them right, you can mold them into anything you want. That's very good, very oh. good. <laughs> but I do, I, I do want to ask because I think, I think we, we, we sort of ha have an, <coughs> an obligation. When, when Spamalot is $15 million? 11. 11, sorry. <laughs> What's the difference? Where is the $11 million? Where, I mean, the people, I mean, on tickets, I know, and I know, you know, 1952, they said it was expensive too, but, but how, how does that $11 million get broken down, well, roughly? Try out in Chicago for one, which is always an expensive proposition. Yeah, you did it on the producers. Here's how it goes $3.5 million for the physical production. Physical a production million, a million to $2 million to put the physical production in the theater and conduct previews and work calls during the period when you're getting the show right. A million to a million and a half dollars in advertising. Uh, Two million dollars for an out-of-town that you might mitigate with income from the out-of-town. Uh, and the balance is largely in rehearsal costs and, and you know, uh, administrative over creative and, and fees and creative fees and stuff like that but those are the big things that but to me the thing that's really ratcheted up is the cost of putting the show in the theater that's the load in now closer. absolutely absurd um, and, and based on theater costs based on technology based on what based on Labor stage costs. hands, yes, stage hands. Uh, stage it's hands all are. people this business is nothing but people I mean the amount of material in a show is pretty limited uh, it's all people costs, and people have to, you know, get raises. It's, it's, it's people costs without efficiencies. Um, you know, we have issues that, and we've wrestled with this for a long time, and uh, uh, given the cost of everything, the idea of we're in a situation, and none of us here are, are anti-union. We, we, we have great respect for everybody who works in the theater, because, again, there's easier places to work. But I think all of us are, are anti-inefficiency or anti, yeah, that's, that's right there, <laughs> in, that, in that we have issues where you can't refresh crews, you know, when it's safer if you could, and, uh, you know, hours in the theaters are defined Crossing by lines. certain times of the day and, and different categories of work, which just means you have to put more people in the theater. And once you get more people in the theater, <coughs> it becomes inefficient because you're running into each other because you can't do everything at the same time. But, uh, union will have but they all time. have to show up for a load. When a load-in is called, a load-in is called, and, and everybody is there, and it's an inefficient use of manpower. It's, and, and all the people who work in the theater are dedicated and, and great people. But we have to all, we owe it to ourselves as a community to really get honest with ourselves about how we, uh, we trip over ourselves when we're trying to create theater. And it's a metaphor, but it's also literal. We actually do trip over each other when we're trying to do it all at once because the rule says everybody has to show up. It's so you just say, go sit, go don't, you don't have to do that, wait a few hours, have some more coffee, and then you'll do it. But we're paying top dollar and we're going into double time and triple time when we don't have to. That's unfortunate. The head of Cirque du Soleil, uh, what's his name? Vegas will teach us how to do that better, by the way. Years ago when I knew the Cirque du Soleil better than I know it today, and I'm kind of curious about the fact that they are now planning a theater at the bottom of 42nd Street in conjunction with Clear Channel. And I will remember the name of the, the founder of that. And he said to me one day, I couldn't create on Broadway, ever. He said, the union rules would kill me. I mm -hmm. said, what do you mean? He said, well, because if I'm on a roll and I've really got an idea going and the, everybody's in sync, and somebody suddenly says, it's five minutes and you're at the end of the four-hour call and we have to break for an hour. He said, that'll kill the effectiveness of that rehearsal call. He was much more concerned about how union rules impact on his ability to efficiently get the creative process Absolutely. going. Absolutely. But 
that's the same thing because then you have to just wait and gear up again. But it's, it's, we, we need a real, if you really, we really want to look at commercial theater and, and what the real, the elephant in the room is, it, it's that sense of, guys, there's 24 hours in a day, this is prime real estate, we, you know, we, the technology of what we're doing here is not, it, it's not rocket scientist, it, it's important, but it, it's very good craftsmen, smart people, and the wage is plenty. I'm not even talking about the hourly. I'm not talking about any of that. It's all work rules. No, but you just have to get the work rules but fixed. You're all tenants, all right? I mean, you're talking about load-in when you, as tenants, independent producers... They're also the employers. Employers of the people who are doing it. But yes. it's, is this a tenant-landlord, uh, partly tenant-landlord relationship? We have to work together, but it's also the unions. Everybody has to come to the table and says, gang, let's just get smart. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the not-for-profits in, in New York control their own venue, so I wonder if they, their problems are probably... Similar. They have to deal with the same. But same everything unions. is based on the Broadway rules, which basically have been in... You know, nothing's been changed in, in, in 100 years. It just gets... There's never been a stagehand, stagehand work stoppage, really. Several years ago, there was something that the League of American Theaters and Producers paid for, which is called the Bain Report. Mm -hmm. Did you ever read it? Yes. Right? Yep, I was on that committee. With and you. one of the things that was proposed was the formation of something called the Broadway Initiative, mm -hmm. which was going to be a, a collaboration between producers, theater operators, and key union. union executives in a process of finding our way through all the things you've raised. The budget called for 10 cents a ticket mm -hmm. to be put on the table to fund this ability of these various groups to work together. Never happened. I don't know why we have to fund the ability to work together. That, that's what I'm not talking I, about funding the ability to work together. And for the attorneys to talk about it? I'm not talking. <laughs> now you're being cynical. <laughs> really, you're being cynical, and I saw it through you ten minutes ago. Right. Now, <laughs> uh, um, no, but 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 also, the, I mean, one of the things. I mean, Kevin and I have been toiling in the fields together on a show which, which White Christmas, which is being done in, 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 a, in, a, in a way of trying to tweak the model, trying to mm -hmm. take a model that, that, you know, trying to create a new model of how to do, how to do a, a show. And I think, well, I, I assume that that's something that, that you, you, you as independents have to be thinking. How can we, how can we figure out if it's not off-Broadway, if it's not, you know... Well, right. I mean, uh, White Christmas is, is, is right now a seasonal. Uh, we can get about six to eight good weeks. And uh, we're basically going into partnerships with the local communities and having them talk to their unions and saying, look, we're going to bring this back every other year. Let's create the White Christmas contract. Let's create the White Christmas contract because we are not, we are leaving a lot of economics there on the table for the local market to develop retail aspects to, to sort of like create new traditions and mayors are getting behind it. And one of the things on the road that I've, I've been jumping up and down about is, is cities are in the business of producing theater. It's not, if you're in the business of, of, of making sure your retail is happening and your parking lots are filled, then you should be in the theater business. You shouldn't just give it away. You as the mayor of your town really have to realize this is a gathering asset. And when you gather people, you create not only a community, but you create economics. And hopefully White Christmas is part of that new philosophy. And we're getting people from Boston to San Francisco to Chicago to the Twin Cities to really get excited about, help me create a tradition in my market of theater going. But in fact, uh, the, exactly the opposite's happening in a lot of markets, markets where municipal buildings, theaters were owned municipally and were um, underwritten to some extent. Um, not that they were paying to produce shows in the theaters, but they were simply making it more attractive by municipal subsidies. 
Um, they've privatized those buildings, and individual private landlords have come in and raised rents and changed right. economics all for the worse. Uh, so I don't think, I, I mean, maybe in some of the very large uh, of cities, this isn't the case, but certainly in a lot of medium-sized cities in America, this, they've they've completely abandoned the idea of, of underwriting. But I think we're at the peak of, the of that, Tom. I think you're going to see it coming back. I am anticipating that actually it will go back because the economics, when you raise rents that much and you need to create that much revenue out of a venue, it's not practical long term. There might be cycles of blockbusters where it is practical. But, you know, we just lost. We saw that the Wilbur is now available to anybody who wants it in Boston. It's, it's one of those smaller venues. I think one of the things that is happening is I think cities are starting to realize and with, you know, the power of something like Wicked sitting there, it's like why, why aren't we really looking at this as, a, as really a, a development plan? And um, I, I, I am guessing, because that's all you can do in the commercial theater, is, is a guess. I believe it will cycle back. Um, I think we're, we're kind of at our peak. That's I guess. hope you're right. I, I have to say that what worries me about what you just said is the like wicked. There is no like wicked. There's wicked, and then five years ago there was the Lion King and, and producers and a couple producers of other shows. But if one of those blockbusters comes along every five, six years, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. So the notion that you can sort of build a model that'll cover a lot of cities with that in mind is is um, a stretch I, for myself. And, and you know, David, you've been luckily insulated from this to a very great extent. Um, the road seems to me to have deteriorated very badly. Um, and uh, you can see the grosses in variety. You've got three shows out there that are doing business and everything else is not. Um, and it is absolutely going to make what has been a relatively stable um, piece of our business far more risky than it's ever been before. And I think, you know, one of the things that when you produce a Broadway show, obviously we've talked about passion and it's all very important that we have something that we love. But in the long run, you look to these secondary resources to um, supplement your income and to be able to make a case for the initial production itself. And when something as important as the American road starts to deteriorate the way it seems to me that it has over the last three years, that's very serious stuff. And it's one of the reasons why this new model of White Christmas, if we're not touring, you just sit down and that city owns it with you to sort of let's make this a tradition every year. But it's also the idea of it, and I doff my, my head and I had to take Kevin, is, is a, a, a Christmas time musical, not the Radio City musical, mm -hmm. not the Nutcracker, but an actual musical that you can see that it works like a musical, but it happens to be called White Christmas. Mm -hmm. But also, isn't part of the road that everything was ratcheted up for the series of blockbusters that came along, to which Wicked certainly plays into it, mm -hmm. and then once the blockbusters aren't there, the, either the locals have gotten too greedy or somebody's gotten too greedy, so the economic model, or is it that the audiences have said, I've had enough of them, I'm not interested in this? No, I think, it's, I think it's the former to a very great extent. What happened was, particularly with Phantom of the Opera, uh, which was the first big blockbuster on the road in our collective um, producing time, uh, subscription periods that had been one week turned into two weeks. Um, and even though they weren't nearly as many subscription load-ins, you know, the, the dollar amounts were smaller, it didn't matter because shows like Phantom could fill up the rest of it. And, and, and shows like Phantom and then later Miss Saigon and Showboat started to play well beyond subscription. What happened was that people who weren't subscribers realized they didn't have to become subscribers because they could actually buy a single ticket to an extended <coughs> week rather than subscribing to an entire 
uh, series. And the result of the combination of those two things is that every week you play in those markets is poorly supported so that unless you're Wicked uh, or Lion King, uh, you have to sell a lot of single tickets, and the advertising budgets for single ticket sales in those cities is not particularly large. Um, they had depended on subscription sales to insulate themselves against economic risk, with the result that a lot of shows come into these markets and fail now. Um, and, it's, and it's absolutely going to lead to reapportioning risk, uh, and it's going to lead to a lot of shows not going out. And so Russell, one other thing is, yeah. in, in my opinion, too, while they were searching, they were also trying to lower their, uh, their purchases of shows. And the shows, there were really good shows that didn't sell as well as they should have. And there were some really sort of not so great shows that just got pushed through the system because they were affordable to the buyer. And, 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 and so the, the quality was very spotty for a while, too. And I think, mm -hmm. again, one of the, going back to White Christmas, it's all about give, delivering quality and creating an event. Wicked has event, producers has event, and it's just there's a notion of event to it, which I think as producers we have to be smart about, about why is this not, why is this different, why is this better than what you might think it is, and how do we communicate that? But, but you probably were involved in the most celebrated non-road event in deciding to take Avenue Q to Las Vegas rather than to tour it. And I right. presume that that didn't just have to do with Las Vegas. It also had to do with your perception of the road. The, not only my perception of the road, but what the road was telling me about how much my show was worth. They compared my show to another terrific show called Town, And Town had just gone out and hadn't done as well as everyone wanted it to do. And then the buyers set their price based on what they could afford based on well, comparing us to Town. And I said, well, we're a very different show than you're in town. Every show is different. There's no formula. I think my show is worth X. And they said, no, your show is worth Y. And I believed them that that's what they were going to pay me. So I found a better way to do it. And also, I wouldn't have to load in and load out. And I think we're the kind of show you have to discover. Um, you, we can't just say, it's Avenue Q. Hey, we're right from Broadway. It's one of the reasons why we're in an 800-seat house. We're a musical in an 800-seat house. There's no other musical in an 800-seat house uh, how many in Spelling Bee now? Uh, how many? 700. 700, okay, well, except Spelling Bee, which came at the time, <laughs> there was not. And, uh, and so it made sense for us uh, to, uh, to, to sit, sit in one place and let people find us. Would you, you take Spelling well, Bee out of Spelling Bee is we're doing sort of a hybrid. Um, we're doing two sit-down productions, one in San Francisco at a 700-seat theater, one in Chicago at a 550-seat theater, very similar to the New York production in that you can have word of mouth and discover it and, and keep a tight ticket. And then the rest of the country will get a tour because it is not an expensive show. So th they need to have, the, the subscription series need to have a, a less expensive show so they can afford spam a lot, which is more expensive. Um, and, uh, and, and so it works out fine. I mean, the crazy thing is that in St. Louis we will be playing two weeks of Spelling Bee in a 4,100-seat theater. But that's the subscription, and the, the numbers actually work for them to make money and yeah. us to make money. But yeah, we would have done the same thing if Vegas had not, you know. And what you're seeing, up. which is really interesting, I mean, we were recently at uh, the League of American Theaters and Producers Conference, uh, and there was a session on um, road attractions and, uh, and, and producing. F not, actually, it was a session on not-for-profits and commercial producers. And I mean, you know, you guys have all been to sessions like this. It's always about the deal, you know, how do you compensate the not-for-profit? Nothing to do with that in this one. This was all about a series of not-for-profit roadhouses, commercial roadhouses that were on a not-for-profit basis, mounting productions that they shared uh, 
mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, revival productions that they shared that could tour seven or eight places. So what we're seeing, I think, as a result of the deterioration of what we think of as the traditional road, is people like yourself, <coughs> excuse me, yourselves, finding alternative ways to present your shows as opposed to simply doing a traditional road tour, and the roadhouses finding tr alternative product to send out and around because you're not supplying them anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a substantial change, I think, in the way the road is conducted. And it's just the beginning of it. I don't think anybody could predict what this will look like five years from now, but it won't look like what it looked like two years before this. Right. Do you find um, that you have to allocate your advertising dollars differently today than, than, than you did in a different way? I mean, sort of to, to keying in on all these things that, that, that you're saying, do you, do you find that, I mean, in the old days, you know, the full page ad in the New York Times and the little ad and perhaps, you know, outside of New York, but are, are, is, that, is that a producer's responsibility to, to figure out yeah. these dollars have to be television, this is this, this I is I just it. did my favorite thing in, in a long time uh, yesterday. Uh, we did the entire 2006 media plan for Wicked, which is a luxury, certainly, that you can sit there a year out. There was one ad in the New York Times for the whole year, um, and that simply is because we like to take out a Halloween ad just wishing everyone, you know, best witches. <laughs> uh, but other than that, and that, we, we are, you know, it's, it's all about other, other mediums. Um, but I think that, you know, so much of it now is, is learning how new technology works. I'm not a, a, a computer person. I'm a little analog myself. But... Um, but I'm having to learn this because it, 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 it's effective. Now, you know, more than uh, in some of the markets we're on tour with, more than 50% of the tickets uh, are sold on the Internet, so therefore we've got to start doing more there. I, I, I think that, you know, we also watch when you put an ad in to the time. Certainly the announcement ad is, is effective, but after that, I'm not convinced a quote ad increases ticket sales or anything else does, um, so that we... We're starting to pull out of not just the times, but print in general. Um, we see that radio works certain times and TV works other times. You know, so you 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 do. Uh, but, but by instinct, or or uh, by looking at the box office in terms of what works. Both and and, and ex not instinct, uh, experience. I think. Yeah. And I just I think that I got more mailings about Sweeney Todd, and I don't know what mailing lists I got. Of, you know, in interesting and very good things. And of, of course, I love the Avenue Qs on top of the of the cabs if they're still there. You know, take me to Avenue Q. Yeah. And I sort of aware of, of. I think it's very much a question of what your project is and what your product is. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, we opened within four days of Jersey Boys. And watching what each show did when they opened was really interesting and I thought um, instructive. Sweeney Todd ran a double truck. It ran a two pages of advertising in the New York Times. We believe that that is still our audience, although I agree with David that a lot of the audience for other kinds of musicals isn't necessarily there. But in the case of Sweeney Todd, it's definitely a serious theatergoer's piece. We wanted to position the show as an event. We did two pages in the New York Times. The Dodgers, who produced Jersey Boys, did a... a two-inch banner along the bottom of a page and, radio. and started on television the next oh. morning. Television. Now, typically, a, a television is something you would do a year into a run. You don't even think about a television ad. They were ready. They knew that they were not likely to get a terrific review in the New York Times, that this was not going to be a theater-goer show, that they had to, in effect, skip over the theater-going audience and go straight to, uh, you know, a tourist and out-of-town audience. And they went straight onto television. It was, I thought, a brilliant thing to have done, but it absolutely is a function of what they had. Yeah. In the case of Color Purple, it's the same thing. They're not looking for a theater-going audience. They know that those reviews will never propel theater-goers to pay $100 for those tickets, but 
they have a tremendous Oprah-oriented audience, and that's where all of their uh, muscle and all of their bucks are going to go. Q, Q and Rent don't advertise in the New York Times. Very rarely. But do you, do you guys rely on... But you did. For depends a while. on what we it depends the, the on what first we're doing. year the first year generally that's what you yeah. you are advertising for rent and you pull for out. rent we had to because I think a guy named Ted Chapin said talk to me in six months and see if it has legs in the New York yeah, Times. And, <laughs> and, and, and the Wall Street so Journal, had, thank and, you. And very the Wall Street Journal, so I had to take ads out and say Ted's wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did. How, how long has rent been on Broadway now? Ten years. Uh, in so there's April. been a kind of switch in how we look at advertising from the day you open to yeah. Well we had to be in the New York Times because everyone thought you know, no one's going to go see that show on Broadway. Mm -hmm. All the experts were, were very, and we didn't know either. And we took that ad out, and uh, we did very well the first day we went on sale. So I had an odd adventure this week. I'm riding the 104 bus, which I'm convinced is peopled by subscribers to NTC. But anyway, <laughs> I'm riding the 104 bus, and I hear this guy say to the bus driver, all asleep? says <laughs> to the bus driver, how much do you get paid an hour? I'm so startled that somebody's asking a bus driver how he expects that. The bus driver says $40 an hour, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, there may be something here. So I look up, and there's this rather heavy-set black guy asking how much a New York City bus driver gets paid an hour. So I'm so startled when he sits opposite me. I said, do you drive a bus? He said, hell no, I'm from California. And I thought, getting bizarre by the minute. And I said, what are you doing in New York? He said, well, my son-in-law's in, -law's in um, color, color Purple. Uh -huh. He said... Look, I got a terrible notice here in my pocket. <laughs> he said, I'm, I, I, I couldn't believe I was that. He said, you know, we had this big party last night, and Oprah was there. Everybody was yelling and cheering. We were all feeling so good. He said, you people write mean stuff in New York. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, I'm losing my mind this morning. He said, look, let me show you in the back of my pocket here. I got a notice from my daughter-in-law. He said, her voice was good the other night. And I said, I don't believe this. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, calm down. And we passed the Broadway theater at about 10 after 10, and there were like 10 people in the lobby. And I said, you see those 10 people? They don't read papers. They just know they want to see your show. Calm down. And he said, oh, I don't know. You think so? And he got off the bus and walked into the lobby. And I don't know where he went. Maybe went back to California to get a $40 an hour job. But I just want you that to impact, you keep thinking, of, we've all lived through it, and it's horrifying when you've got a room full of very happy, up people, and somebody says, Ben Brantley didn't like us or someone didn't like us and then we have to pull ourselves up out of psychological depression and say how are we going to sell whatever it is we have to sell right past the New York Times. And cycling back to the beginning it's about putting it is emotional and it, you do it because of your passion and if someone doesn't agree with your passion if you're passionate your job is to, to just move on and uh, use that paper to for the birdcage and then keep moving forward. I'm going to ask something. Cat. Okay, the cat box. You have all had the opportunity of, of, of producing long-running shows. Um, and I've always sort of been a, of, of, of the, the mind that, there's, that, that producing and maintaining a long-running show is almost another skill. Um, did you find that? Is, and is it less fun or is it... Uh... Well, I think that's why a, me, a commercial producer has an edge and it's very valuable for a not-for-profit having a commercial producer because we know how to run with those rights. We want to keep it on as long as possible I'm, uh, and how to exploit it and cast replace and all of that nonsense. Sorry, go ahead. I remember saying to uh, when Wicked opened to Mark Platt, who, who's my partner, and to uh, Stacy Snyder, who's the chairman of Universal, um, you know, in, in, in a film you open and you're done. You're done. 
And I said, if we do our jobs really right, we're never done. It's sort of like Chinese water torture. You, you, you have to keep doing you know, the same thing in a way. And it's, it's almost about finding ways to challenge ourselves, not just in maintaining it artistically, but also you know, ex going to other territories and, and, and building in advance and, and all that. And casting. Ca absolutely. Uh, one of the things I tell people when, when they say, oh, you know, hey, I got the money for this show. Let's do it. And, and I say, well, tell me more about this money. Um, the reason I ask, and I said, you know, I won't take anybody uh, as, as an as a investor who you have to really deal with until I've really spent some time with them and had lunch with them and they get to know me and Gate, because God forbid you have a hit. You have to be in bed <laughs> with these people for God forbid 10 years, you have right? a hit. And these are people you just, for some reason, you just don't. Money, you, there's expensive money and, and inexpensive money. And, and if you're ever going to be a producer in the commercial theater and if there's somebody who's willing to write you a check, you have to spend, you have to go to lunch with them, you have to spend mm -hmm. some time with them, talk about their belief system, get to know them a little bit because God forbid it's a hit. Failures take care of themselves. Everyone loves each other on a failure. Oh, we tried, oh, it's great, oh. <laughs> Somebody wrote a you. show about that, <laughs> yeah. I think. You know, <laughs> you know five you years down the line, if you're a hit and you're not getting along, it's a problem. You also right. have to sit through it if it's a hit. You have to sit through it so many times. Better love it. That you better love it. Yeah. But also, did, do you not have to see it from time to time and, and ask somebody, who, ooh, wait a minute, that, that, that we oh, should yeah, take out the improvements? Directors yeah. on it. I, I think a lot Only of what goes on, there's... Only prepared to see more than once. There's obviously a lot of business stuff that goes on, figuring out how to, you know, change your advertising campaign and, you know, spin out the way the show is perceived and so forth. But a lot of it has to do with the diplomacy of keeping a bunch of people who show up in one building every night on track, comfortable, happy, disciplined. Um, and, and that takes a lot of, it's an interesting set of skills. Uh, I think one of the people, one of the groups of people that don't get nearly enough credit in our business is the general managers, um, who are to a very great extent um, charged with the details of keeping the company functioning, uh, not just the actors, but stagehands and, you know, everybody. Um, and, and, and getting that done and done right so it doesn't spin off the rails. And sometimes you can't help it. I mean, there are people who will just make mischief backstage and there's nothing you can do about it. But getting that right makes a huge difference, both in the way the show plays and the way everybody's sanity is. You know, I mean, it just, you, you have to get that but right. But also, as one of, one of your partners said on one of these seminars to a sassy question of mine about who are all these names above the title, he said, listen, it's a half a million dollars a week. Yeah. <laughs> it's a business that runs half a million dollars of costs and expenses a week. Think yeah. about it. You know, one person, I know you might love the David Merrick Presents notion, but it wasn't a half a million dollars then. It wasn't even the equivalent. That's exactly right. And even David Merrick produced with some partners. I mean, certainly Leland Hayward, you know, was a significant partner for David. And my guess is David Merrick, if he went backstage twice in the course of a production, was probably a lot. That that's what Leland Hayward was there for, was to keep what I'm talking about on track and going. And here's the good news um, on the post and having all those names above titles. There's a lot of people in, in the go-go 90s and, you know, and all the, all the money that had been generated in the past 25 years and capitalistic, you know, and we are in New York where there's a lot of money. Uh, they want to they wanna put their money into the theater. Um, there is not a theater to be had coming into this season, really, that's available. Um, part of the reason is because of the long-running shows that, you know, once you're open, you, your job is to make sure it never closes. 
Uh, but the number two is, is that there's a lot of people who really want to put their money into the theater who have come from other industries, who, who are maybe retired or, or want a change of, of life uh, in terms of what they do with their day. And they're willing to say, I want, uh, you know, I'll give you a million dollars, but I really would like my name above the title. I'm not going to get in your way. I just want to learn. And uh, those are the people you go to lunch with and get to know a little bit before you take their money. And, uh, but at the same time, it's a, it is a wonderful thing that so many people are looking to the theater. It's, it's a bizarre um, dynamic right now. I, I don't quite understand it on every level of why, given the economics are so bad. But at the same time, I think it's because people are searching in today's world, and there's a lot of events in the world that are very different than they were 15 years ago. And it's that I want, I want to affect human beings. I want to be part of gathering human beings. I think it's a very strong ethic, which I'm very encouraged I'm for okay. our future. But before we stop, because we, we, we've run out of time, I, I, I want to read, I want to read, this is the only time I've done this, read first and read at the end. The quote from, that I started this thing was written, by the way, by Alan J. Lerner um, in, the, in the, the published script of uh, Painter Wagon in 1952. But I, I want to end with, uh, with Oscar Hammerstein on the subject of producers, because I think this is the best way to thank all of you here for, for what you do and for, for being here today. And he dis, he is, this is Oscar Hammerstein defining a producer. He says, a producer is a rare paradoxical genius, hard-headed, soft-hearted, cautious, reckless, a hopeful innocent in fair weather, a stern pilot in stormy weather, an idealist, a realist, a practical dreamer, a sophisticated gambler, a stage-struck child. So on that note, That's thank saying. you very Should we much. Email that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people I want to